Welcome to the third part of this interview with a fine Doctor Who writer in which I fail to return to Briggs his money for the train fare he shelled out to come and see me. What a guy. So I've I've always planned story in advance. I think I think you have to at least know the structure of the story. And I'm 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 in I'm in a stage now where I can I can countenance just sitting down and writing a story. Just act on scene one, start writing, kind of thing without knowing how the story develops. Except that I think I would know how the story developed because I have a much stronger sense of story structure now. So I might not know quite how these characters are going to navigate their way through this situation, but I know what hoops they're going to have to jump through. Sure. And how far in they're going to have to jump through these hoops. And, you know... I do think now that it's a good idea to start writing the story, even if you plan it in advance, without knowing what the ending is. Because I think the ending changes anyway. And there's a danger that if you've already written the ending, you might be too wedded to that ending. Sure. Whereas to discover the ending... I mean, I know it sounds difficult if you're doing a whodunit to kind of wrap it all up at the end, but the truth is... It's not difficult to untangle a plot. It really no. isn't. Um, and, unless you've sort of gone down, taking yourself into a total blind alley. Um, but it's not difficult to disentangle a plot and work out an ending to it. And I think if you've already learned a lot about the characters and taken them on a journey, you're probably going to come up with a more interesting ending than at the beginning when you don't know the characters. Absolutely. And, you don't, yeah. and if you don't know the characters, you don't know what actions they will take because sure. the characters do surprise you and they do do different things. And if you don't know those things, then you don't quite know how it's going to end. Having said that, on Fenric, I discovered this for Andrew uh, uh, about a year ago because he, he wanted some information. I looked it up. And... I noticed that I, I, I looked at I looked at the old scripts and I I, no, I looked at the dates on them and I noticed that um, the date of the first outline of the final episode was after the first complete drafts of episodes one, two, and three. So I wrote episodes one, two, and three of Fenric without without knowing how it ended. Um, and obviously once you've written episodes one, two and three and, and that was because they needed them to, to start production on because it was intended to be shot during the summer and then it was pulled forward to April so I thought I had several months to finish it off and then suddenly they needed enough episodes to start casting and start designing scenery and okay, the, so they didn't really actually stuff. care about it and no, they needed to but once you've written episodes process. one, two and three you can't change that story much Sure. so um, I was then in position then of having to do what I just said, which is disentangle a story, which uh, I, 
had already three quarters entangled. Uh, and doing that under pressure is quite difficult. Uh, I think if you're going to do that, I think you can write faster if you plan in advance. If you don't plan in advance, you need to accept A, you're going to be doing a lot of rewriting, and B, it's going to take, you need to allow time for that rewriting. Course. So that that would be my take on technique at the moment. Does that kind of answer your good? Yeah, how, yeah. How, how do yeah. You, how do you write? Uh, I splash it out. Right. I have no idea, and I splash it out. Right. And and uh, I have bad days, and I have good days. Yeah. And the bad days are when I do the mechanics, and the good days are when I add the colour. Those are the good days. The thing is, you get two bites of the cherry if you plan in advance because there's having the idea and it's fresh and it's new and it surprises you and you think, oh yes, that's great. And then there's the, the next bit where you're actually playing the chess game, you're moving the pieces around, you're shuffling the bits of the plot. Yeah. Um, and this is a big advantage of planning is that it's really easy to move plot around when it's only a sentence at a time or, or one scene has got three sentences in and you can think, ah, that needs splitting into two scenes because I'm trying to do two things in the same scene there. That's physically, word process, it's split into two scenes. Right, I can't have them consecutive, so am I going to put a different scene in between there or am I going to invent a new scene? So I just put it in. Another scene to be decided in here. Uh, so that's the... But even that, for me, I enjoy that because there's... It is a bit like playing solitaire or something like that it's it's moving the pieces around it's, it's, it's mechanical it's creating the jigsaw yeah. so you can see it and it, it has a nice flow to it until it's got the right flow it tells a story it's paced things like that and then there's the, the writing of it where you get the second bite of the cherry because then you're engaging with the characters again then the characters are coming to life mm-hmm. and you're, you're hearing what they say they, you're seeing what they, they do so, well, all right, tell me about... Uh, and there's a hoover going on in the background. Yeah. Um, tell me about you, Ian. Um, I mean, you are undisputably a writer of, of, of one of Doctor Who's <laughs> finest hours. Um, but, of course, that probably took up, what, three months, six months of your life? Mm. Uh, 30 years ago? Well, it, it took up slightly longer, but, yes, it was, it was a long time ago. And, again, as a Doctor Who fan, you go, mm. oh, that must be amazing, mm. being Ian Briggs. You've written one of the best... Doctor yeah. Who stories ever, um, but you've written other stuff as well. Did Doctor Who, did writing a great Doctor Who story, I, I suspect. So don't mm. let me answer the question for you. Um, I suspect writing a really good Doctor Who story actually had no impact on your your other writing career at all. None whatsoever. Um, uh, but it it did give me it kind of gave me ideas above my station. Really? Yeah, because Doctor Who is such a writer-led programme uh, and benefits from that, I think, because it, 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 it then becomes a very imaginative programme. Um, and writers are um, kind of tolerated on Doctor Who. In some, in some cases, they, they, they're kind of welcomed in a way. John Nathan Turner was, was very welcoming of having uh, the writer around during the studio shoot all, I, I was there throughout the, the location shoot um, you know he, he didn't have to have me there he could have told me to, to bugger off because it wasn't in my contract that I was allowed to be there but he, he allowed me to, to be there um, and then I go on to other TV programmes and I suddenly discover 
just how far down the food chain the writer really is. Um, and th they were not happy to have a writer still engaging with it. Not interfering, but just in wanting to still engage with it you know, once, once the script has, has been handed over and paid for. Um, and it, also there's, there's a, I, you know, I wrote on things like Casualty and the Bill uh, and, and some other stuff, but as is fairly obvious from my writing style on, on Doctor Who, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a soap writer. I'm, I don't do social realism that well, and I didn't feel happy doing that. Uh, so when I... I mean, I did ob objectively have um, real problems um, with the programme, where I think it was six writers all walked off at the same time, and I, I was one of them. Um, but because I'd come from a theatre background, I didn't, I kind of didn't feel the need to kind of keep banging my head against a wall and doing something which I wasn't enjoying when I could go and work in theatre and really enjoy doing that. Uh, and a friend of mine was just setting up a, a fringe venue at the time and I thought, oh, this sounds fun. Yeah, and another thing was, I, I was writing stuff, it's just coming back to me now, I was writing quite a lot of stuff which I got paid for but which never got broadcast. And, OK, that, that's, that's nice in terms of paying the electric bill and things like that. But I can't speak for every writer, but certainly I don't write simply to have words on the page, which I then hand over to someone. Sure, sure. I, I write for it to be brought to life by actors, uh, it to be shaped by a director, and to be shared with an audience. That for me, that's the only reason for writing. So, you know, to... To be able to work in the theatre, not writing, um, kind of just managing a, a theatre, uh, where we're putting on things, we're making shows, we've got an audience, that was much more rewarding for me than just knocking out scripts which either I didn't enjoy writing or were never getting made. So I, I feel I was really fortunate in having theatre as a fallback. I know a lot of people, you know, they they become accountants or things like that. Uh, I, I think it's my great good fortune that I've been able to make a career in theatre management and arts marketing and things like that, which I really enjoy. Um, and not miss... Well, I, not a day goes by when I don't have an idea for a great story. I mean, literally, every single day. So that's 300-odd stories a year for several decades. Um, there's a lot of stories there which uh, I could have written, uh, but uh, I, I didn't want to kind of spend a lot of time on trying to do something which I, I never thought was going to be fulfilling in the end anyway. Sure. Um, the interesting thing now is that uh, for the last two or three years, uh, I have been writing again, I've been writing uh, comedy. And the nice thing about comedy is that I, I can hear people laugh. You know, we, we can put it on uh, in kind of small-scale stuff, sure. and people will laugh. 
I, there is the audience Do you hanker to perform it, though? Or I've performed it? some of it. Yeah, so... Because there's so, a difference between so, writing comedy so, and so they, being been in la- it. So they've been laughing at me rather than with me. Because <laughs> I think Andrew had tried some stand-up as well, so that, that interests me, I, the I, gulf between the writer and the performer. I've done some... I did some stand-up um, a while back, actually a long time ago. And more recently I've been doing uh, sketches, um, some of which... I would have other people in, but some of them because we're shorter people, I would do. Um, I, I am known in some quarters for my, my <laughs> in, in, insane German um, or for my rather peculiar nun. <laughs> exactly, you see, you're laughing already, you haven't even seen what this nun does. Trust me. The idea amuses me. Yes, well, it, amuses, it amuses a lot of people. I mean, you must feel that the same way doing stand-up, that there is something deeply rewarding about playing the fool and having people hooting with laughter. Yeah. It's, it, it's primal. It's, it's there in the chimpanzee, I'm sure, you know. Yeah, of course. When of we course. came out of the primordial swamp, yeah. you know, the, the first amoeba... Was, was going, hey, look, do I look funny with my hair like this or with my hair like that? Yeah. You know, which is funnier. Um, so I, I, get, I get a huge amount of pleasure out of doing that. Uh, and I do that kind of alongside uh, working in theatre still. Uh, well, uh, it's just... I, I hate you're you're dumbstruck now. No, I, I, well, I hate to bring it back to Doctor Who because yeah, I, I, I always pride myself that this... Uh, podcast is about more than Doctor Who, though. When they said Nicholas Parsons is playing the vicar, did you not go? Oh, I, I think my first thought, <laughs> my first thought was Ken Dodd. Yeah, um, that that it, it. My thought was that he would, he would, he would be Nicholas Parsons, not Mr. Wainwright. Yeah. In the way that Ken Dodd was Ken Dodd when he appeared on When he did the Delta yeah. and the Bannerman, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the thing was that... I don't know. I kind of trusted Nick, because... Was he, that Nick or was that John that casts Parsons? I think it's kind of a combination. Um, you know, it's kind of a two and a fro that no-one's going to cast anyone that the producer doesn't want. And John was so experienced that he knew so many actors that you know he can make sensible suggestions as well so I, I have no idea who suggested uh, who for anything um, the one thing I do know is that when I was writing Fenric there was only one character who I absolutely wanted an actor for and so I never told anyone who it was because I absolutely knew that the, the immutable law of the universe would come into play and if I told anyone who I, who, who I thought would be right for a character, that would, the, only, the only effect of that would be that even if they were on the shortlist, they would be crossed off immediately. And Janet Henfrey was cast. Ah, uh, because she was that now. Yeah. Again, the listener might not realise. Was that because she was the teacher in the Dennis Potters? Yes. So the, the character yeah. that she played... Yes. Um, she played in Nigel Barton and The Singing yes. Detective. Yeah. Yes. And you know she wasn't going to play it in The Singing Detective, uh, but Peggy Ashcroft wasn't available. Oh, really? Yeah. Because, listener, well, she is part of another Who's Round, which you must listen to. Right. Um, the, 
I, I wrote that character, and I didn't plan it uh, for her. You know, I, I wrote as Miss Hardacre, but more and more, the voice of Miss Hardacre was the voice of Janet Hanfrey in The Singing Detective. And the funny thing is that when, um, uh, when, we, when we had the first read-through and we were chatting about it, um, uh, Pete Tchaikovsky, who, who I knew from university now, we, we were chatting, and uh, we, we were trying to get this campaign together on, on uh, the coast of Fenwick, where we would all wear T-shirts and badges saying, Mark Binney is innocent. <laughs> That is a very, very bespoke singing detective <laughs> reference, Lister. <laughs> so, to go back to the original question, I think I trusted Nick and John, uh, but I, I think my, my heart was in my mouth a bit when we came to the first read-through. Um, especially, I think I'm right in saying that Nicholas Parsons didn't turn up at the read-through or, or turned up late or something because he'd gone to North Acton rather than Shepherd's Bush. And then, I think, he was given the wrong directions for the first rehearsal or, or, or something. Or, 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 or maybe, maybe he'd arranged to turn up late or something like that, but he wasn't there at the beginning of the first run-through, uh, the first re rehearsal. And so, can we assume that he'd now gone to Shepherd's Bush rather than North Acton? Um, but as soon as he started doing it, it wasn't great. Nicholas Parsons. He, he was, great. you know, he got the gig on Just a Minute and That and Sailor Century because he was an actor in, in previous life. Um, he'd started out as an actor. He was a professional actor. He was getting work as an actor. Uh, he gets Mr. Wainwright. It, it, it took but a moment for me to realise, this is fine, don't need to worry about this. Um, the, the interesting thing was that the, the two actors I was worrying about at the read-through were uh, Din and Alfie. That's uh, Din Sale Landon and Alfie Lynch, uh, Dr Judson, Commander Millington. Just providing context for the listener. We, ought, we need subtitles. <laughs> Actually, this is the point in, you know, there's, um, uh, you know, a, a dad night on BBC Four, Friday night, when, when they have the retrospective uh, Top yeah. of the Pops and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. And as they have in these <laughs> retrospectives, they, they have these little bubbles that appear that, yeah. that tell you little bits of yeah. biographical Just information. so that you know. Yes. <laughs> Just, we, we know you're old, you've probably forgotten this, so we're going to remind you of this. Um, but they're great actors. Both they, of them they're fantastic. fantastic. But the thing was that the read-through... Um, Din went in really big and kind of over the top for his character. And I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 terrible. And Alfie was the other way around. He was just kind of almost inert in the read-through. But I, I, I kind of calmed myself down and thought it'll be OK. They wouldn't have been cast if, if, if somebody didn't think this was going to work. And the thing is that that's just how we worked as actors. Some actors, I mean, you, you know this, being, being an actor yourself, some actors go in really big and then tone it down to the right level of performance. Some actors go in kind of... Terrible with, at read-throughs with, with, with and nothing, great. Yeah, and then they build it in rehearsal. So yeah. by the time it was done, it was like during the, the rehearsal period, you could see 
Din and Alfie getting closer to each other, that Din was bringing his down. Alfie was building his performance so that by the time... And both fabulous. Yes, and, and in the end, you know, there, there is... That the difference between them in, in kind of performance register is actually an appropriate difference. One of them has a bit more kind of energy. Ironically, he's the one who is immobile, but he has the, the, the emotional energy, the, the temper, sure. Sure. The, the frustration, um, which, which gives his performance, you know, his performance just has that extra bit of energy. And the commander, he's the one who's always watch the quiet ones you know he's, he's too quiet you know he's silent uh, to begin with again I'm, I'm, I'm desperate to stop talking about Doctor Who because that is, <laughs> it's part of what we do in this podcast but also I'm unapologetic because you are mm. so giving um, I, I think the scene with the Doctor and Commander Millington when they talk about um, uh, there's a certain word in the ciphers what, what could the word be Doctor love yes is extra it's there's so much going on there mm. and it's beautifully acted by both of them mm. as a writer you must look at that and go wow that's that's nirvana that's heaven that that's that's what any writer dreams of surely to to see two actors bring your characters so fully to life that they are bigger and better than than what you imagined it, it doesn't get any better than that I love that. It's a great, it's a great scene, Doctor. Mm. But let's let's go away from Doctor. So, Ian, tell me about you. Now, um, I look back on that with enormous fondness. Um, life was different then, uh, in terms of making television. The, the, the BBC kind of made its own programmes. It didn't um, commission out, um, and therefore it was more willing to take risks than. It is now. I'm not saying the BBC doesn't take risks, but I think it was more willing to take risks then. Sure. Uh, there, there was a there was a wonderful tradition of single plays then, uh, a play for today. I, I think I'm as influenced by them as I am by anything. Being able to watch a single play each week uh, for so many weeks. Um, I look back on that as Camelot. You know, that beautiful, almost mythic era. Yeah. Um, and and I, I'm always aware of my enormous good fortune to have been in Camelot when it was a golden era. Um, I was completely unprepared for the amount of reaction that Doctor Who gets, the quantity of it. Of course. Because I'd, I loved Doctor Who. I'd watched Doctor Who as a child. I watched it as a, a teenager. Um, but I'd, I'd never got involved in fandom. I didn't, I didn't even know that fandom existed. It was just a programme that I watched, I talked about with, with my mates, you know, things like that, but um, I, was, I was completely unprepared for the quantity of response um, to Dragonfire. I, I was completely unprepared for it to 
wouldn't there to be just a minor headline in one of the tabloids about it um, after the final episode because it was too frightening for toddlers and apparently they, they, they were wetting themselves or something. I mean, why toddlers were watching Doc 2 is anybody's guess. Certainly, you know, parents of the, the under eights should sit, sit with their children at the very least. Um, and that's that kind of took me by surprise, and that took some adjusting to. Um, I've heard some people say that they, um, they they never read their reviews. I don't seek out reviews of anything. I didn't seek out reviews then. Um, but sometimes, like Andrew would tell me about something, or somebody else would tell me about something. Um, and what I learned for me was not to ignore everything that everybody said, but actually to listen to everything that everybody said. To to listen, you know, some people some people thought that the things that I wrote were amazing. Some people kind of thought that I walked on water. Some people thought I was the Antichrist. Um, that I should never have been allowed to write for who and um, I, I sullied its reputation forever. Um, and I think what I learned was, in the first place, those are people's opinions. They're, they're, they're individual people's opinions, that, um, and there's a huge range of them. Uh, and absolutely, you know, everyone is absolutely entitled to their opinions about everything in life. I watch things on, on telly and I have opinions uh, about them. Um, and the other thing was that I, I tried to understand why it was that people said the things they did. So if they liked something, I really was interested to know why they liked it. If they didn't like the same thing, I was really interested to know why they didn't like it. Um, and then I can kind of sift through both of those, take away what I can learn from both of them. So, no. so sometimes there's, there's nothing in particular to learn from either of them. Sometimes there's something very useful from people who like and don't like. Um, so that's that's what I, I, I learned from from kind of being part of such a, a big machine, as it were. <clears throat> um, and these days, I, I look on it as a source of enduring friendships, because um, it, most of the writers who worked on the programme at that time are still friends of mine. You know, I, within the last six weeks, I've seen um, Mark and Stephen and Graham. Um, I've spoken with Andrew. Um, ben is very elusive because Ben is very successful now. Uh, but uh, I, when did I last see Ben? I can't remember. Probably about a year ago, something like that. Uh, but, you know, I, I, th these are friends who've stayed friends for... 30 years, and other people who worked on, on Who, so Dominic Glynn, uh, I'm still good wow. friends with him. So they, it's a sort of enduring friendship. Um, also some of the, the other people, like um, 
John van der Poel, who was one of the... Um, oh, uh, he, he is the man who is the, the dead body under the he's water. He is indeed, yes. See, I know my stuff. Yeah, um, and I guess if, if Bond is starting to shoot fairly soon, he'll be back in this country um, before too long, and I'll be able to meet up with him again. Um, but, you know, I, I've stayed friends on and off with, with them for 30 years, however long it is. Well, that's very interesting. So, all right, um, as a writer, mm. telly today, how is it? <laughs> there's some brilliant stuff and there's some rubbish. It's always been like that. Uh, I love anything that Stephen Polyakov does. The fact that he's, he's the only, as far as I'm aware, he's the only director, even writer, working in television who has final cut of his own work that no one else can cut it after he's cut it. Uh, there's some, oh, there's some outstanding comedy kicking around. Um, Fleabag, love her. Oh, yeah. And. Oh, Nobody particularly noticed Friday Night Dinner on Channel 4. That's going back a few years. Yeah, great that, show. That, yeah. yeah, wonderfully done. Um, so there's some great television going around. I also love a lot of the um, the, the, the foreign stuff on uh, BBC4 on uh, Saturday night. Bridge um, and... A bridge and... Uh, in fact, my, my partner, um, she... One of the things she hates about me is my tendency to say what's about to happen in a programme. <laughs> and, I mean, she will kick me and go, shut up, shut up! Don't tell me that! Um, however, I think, she, I think she's quietly um, impressed by, by two things. Um, it's quite easy to say lines of dialogue along with the archers. Sure. Because it's kind of predictable what they're going to say. So, yeah. it, you know, you can say the line of dialogue with, with, the, uh, with the actor there. Um, I think she's quite in, she was quite impressed when I managed to deliver a line of dialogue, word perfect, in sync with the actor, in Swedish. Wow. I think that... <laughs> that, 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 was, that was pushing it and the other thing I think she's impressed with is that we were watching a programme once um, and I said at one point someone was just walking down the street and I said in eight seconds for no reason at all a car will explode five, six, seven boom and I still don't know how I knew that Wow. It was just—it was just so obvious that give it a, a bit of time for for this character to walk, and the car was going to explode. It hadn't been hadn't been prefigured in the story at all. Ah, um, it was it was completely completely novel. Um, but you know you you get you watch enough stories, you read enough stories that you just know how they're going to unfold. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, you can then appreciate the way, the way they sure. unfold. Uh, in fact, there is some research that um, people enjoy 
whodunits more if they know who the murderer is uh, than if, if it's delayed right until the end. And I think that's possibly because they, they're then not kind of tense about who done it and they can then begin to get into the characters and try and understand why they did it and okay we know that one's the murderer why we know that one isn't a murderer so what, what's driving their behavior that's really interesting well look Ian I've, I've taken up far more of your time than no, I promised to that's absolutely uh, fine. so I have the two final questions oh, right, uh, okay. the first is the very important one because nobody pays for this nobody gets paid for this mm-hmm. uh, if you have a charity that you would like to recommend uh, to the listener that would be lovely okay I can never remember the, the precise name of this charity but there are several charities do the same thing it's um, intestinal worms <laughs> of course it is okay um, uh, this this came about uh, uh, a few years ago. I, I stopped give, I stopped sending Christmas cards because I thought this is silly spending all this money. I'll give the money to charity, and I thought I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy a goat for a village. Um, and, but when I looked into it, I uh, uh, I read that buying a goat is not a good idea because they kind of they they dehydrate after a few years because there's no water for them. And so I thought, okay, right. In that case, I'm going I'm going to dig a well for a village. So I looked into this and discovered that's not a terribly good idea either because after a lot of these wells, after they've been dug, they're not maintained. So like dehydrated parts of the world are littered with broken wells that Westerners have built and haven't maintained. So I looked it up and I thought, okay, what is the best thing for me to, to make a donation to? And I discovered it was intestinal worms that you can do far more good for more people with less money by helping cure people of intestinal worms than anything else. And there are one or two charities do that. So just do, do a search on, on the search engine of your choice and, and donate to that. I will do that as part of my outro. Uh, and the final question is, uh, this is a podcast that is nominally about Doctor Who. Mm. So what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? I'll keep keep loving it, keep enjoying it. Uh, it, it it's there to be enjoyed. Uh, there's a load of talented people working on it. You do it because we want an audience and we want people to enjoy it. So just keep on enjoying it. Ian, I've loved this. This has been one of the most, uh, as I say, normally a Who's Round is half an hour. I think this is going to be three episodes. Well, it's th- been th- absolutely thank brilliant. Thank you for indulging me in, in, Not in, at all. in this wander down memory lane. Not and at also all. it's been wonderful doing it here in the Royal Exchange in Manchester because uh, this, this is another wander down memory lane. It's lovely to be here. Well, I'm so uh, privileged you've travelled all this way to do it. And uh, all I will say is, Ian Briggs, thank you very much. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. That was great. Thanks to Ian. As mentioned, he uh, he wouldn't even let me pay for the train fare. He came to Manchester to see me. So what a what a generous fellow, both with his time and everything else. Um, I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Um, simply Google the intestinal worms thing. I suggested uh, a couple on previous emails because uh, I didn't want to give the game away too much. Um, but if uh, a Google will throw up an array of charities and choose your favourite one. Um, and uh, remember, this was a three-parter, so Ian was particularly generous with his time and, as I say, didn't pay for his uh, uh, own train ticket. So, uh, you know, 
If everybody gave a bit, we could do some good. There will be more Who's Rounds. Not that many. We're running out of them. Uh, and in the meantime, try to be nice and follow me on Twitter, at Toby Haydoke. I do hope that all is well in the sun is shining where you are, if only metaphorically. Ta-ta. Together on three. One, two, three! <laughs> Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, the 8th of March. This evening, the date has been calculated as the 8th of March, 2019. We have been called upon by Dr. Cornelius Pinch. This fine lady is a detective of vast reputation. Good evening. May I take your name, please? Romana Dvorat Rilunda. I'm the Gallifreyan delegate. Osgoods. Sorry, but just you try living with someone who's exactly the same as you in every way and see how you get on. Werewolves, my dear. Werewolves? By all accounts. Just an average Thursday, then. Archaeologist, orphan, born 21st June 2540. Strong mind, very noisy. Who are you and what is this? The ship's currently in a low orbit just above central London. Just getting a fix on the exact coordinates. My book? That's not... Take your book. Who are you? And why are you pretending to be a Time Lord? Who wants to know? The real Romana. <laughs> Get off me, you flying oh. pair of tongs! Ow! Here goes nothing. One, two, three. Big finish. We love stories. I'm just off doing a bit of, well, what you do. Except without a spaceship. Or an umbrella. Or you. Or anybody.